Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, assault, and violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. It was the fall of 1925 in a small Chinese village near the city of Tongcheng. A mother and her six children anxiously awaited the family patriarch's return from the long-raging battle between China's warlords. Finally, after months of silence, the family received the devastating news. Their patriarch had been captured and did not survive. He wouldn't be coming home again. When Shi Jianchao learned the details of what happened to her father at the hands of a ruthless warlord, the 20-year-old began to plot exactly how she would avenge his death. Not only would the story of her revenge capture headlines, Shi Jianchao's subsequent trial would divide a population. Was she a devoted daughter, fulfilling her duty after her father's unjust murder? Or was she an outlaw vigilante who deserved to be punished for her crime? Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture any women? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every week, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Claire. And I'm Vanessa. And you're listening to Female Criminals. Today, we're talking about Shi Jinchao, the notorious Chinese assassin who avenged her father's death by executing the warlord responsible. Her subsequent trial and criminal defense was the subject of massive public debate in early 20th century China. We'd like to ask a quick favor. Would you leave a five-star review of Female Criminals on your favorite podcast directory? It seems so simple, but it really helps us out. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there because a new episode comes out every Wednesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Shi Jin Chao was a military officer's daughter in early 20th century China. After her father was brutally murdered in battle by a rival officer, Jin Chao enacted revenge by publicly assassinating the man responsible. Her trial made national headlines and inspired public debate about the rule of law versus more traditional ideas of filial duty. Shi Jin Chao was born Shi Gulan in the city of Tongcheng, China, in 1906. She grew up in her ancestral village, Sha Zugong, just outside the city. Jian Chao was her parents' second child and the first girl. The family would grow to eventually include three younger brothers and a younger sister. Shu Jin Chao's grandfather was a farmer who sold bean curd at market, but the family's social and economic status was elevated by the fact that Jin Chao's father, Shi Kongbin, was a decorated soldier. Shi Jin Chao's childhood took place at the end of the Qing Dynasty, which had ruled China for three centuries. 
In the early 20th century, several European countries and Russia took control of China's coasts. The Qing armies united with a working-class rebellion to try and defeat the economic invasion. Ultimately, the rebellion failed, and the last emperor abdicated the throne. The void left behind was filled with unstable shifts in political power and leadership. By 1916, when Jianchao was 10 years old, China was left without a central government. This was the perfect opportunity for regional warlords to attempt to seize power. A decade of violence between warlord groups, or cliques, began. While all of this happened, She Jianchao grew up. Not much has been written about her early years, but we do know that she was educated alongside her brothers, a benefit of the family's newly acquired privilege. Her education would have covered subjects ranging from poetry and the rest of the Confucian classics to literature, knitting, and embroidery. And whether as part of her education or as a tale passed through generations in China, she also would have learned about the legend of Hua Mulan. Although American audiences may be most familiar with Disney's retelling, the legend of Hua Mulan is believed to have existed for more than a thousand years before Shu Jianchao was even born. If you're interested in taking a deeper dive into the original story of Hua Mulan, you can find it on the podcast show Tales. For Shu Jianchao, Hua Mulan's story of a daughter who poses as a boy to take her elderly father's place as a soldier would have underscored the Confucian idea of filial piety. Filial piety, or respectful devotion to one's parents, emphasized the importance of avoiding disgrace or loss of honor to the family. It was central to the family structure in traditional Chinese households. The foundation of filial piety is the idea that parents have sacrificed for their children's survival and well-being. As a result, children must obey, serve, and honor their parents, regardless of personal cost or sacrifice. This begins to repay their debt for all their parents, particularly their fathers, have done for them. Although filial piety was mostly a mainstay in families that followed Confucianism, historian Hugh D.R. Baker points out that respect for family is the only element common to almost all Chinese belief systems. The philosophy of filial piety originated with Confucius and was made up of three components, or obediences, which included the imperative that an unmarried woman be strictly obedient to her father and treat him with extreme reverence. For thousands of years, the rules of the three obediences defined a patriarchal social order in China and made filial piety a moral obligation. Before we start to delve into Shi Jianchao's psychology, I just want to give a brief disclaimer. Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Most of the psychology we'll be talking about is from a Western perspective, but it's interesting to note that filial piety ties into what Dr. Connie S. Chan, Professor Emerita at University of Massachusetts, Boston, describes as the most obvious difference between Asian culture and Western psychology, the importance of the family as a whole. This is common in collectivistic cultures like China, where the needs of the group are commonly placed above individual concerns. 
In this case, the group would be She Jianchao's family. As a decorated soldier, She Kongbin was an asset on the battlefield, and in 1924, when Jiang Chao was 18, he was recruited. Although Jiang Chao's father, She Kongbin, had retired from military service, he was personally requested to return by the heads of his command. This was such a high honor, he had no choice but to accept. And so Jin Chao's father joined the battle between China's warlords. With a sense of unwavering loyalty and duty to the family, Jin Chao's father's enemies would have also been her own. And as he left for war, Jin Chao supported her father's side of the fight as the righteous one, which she would defend by any means necessary. Jin Chao wanted her father to stay, but she knew that his return to service was for the greater good. She said that her father had, quote, restored hope to the citizens and the state could rely on his counsel, so it was not easy to let him go, end quote. Shi Kongbin joined the Fengtian clique's fight against the powerful Zhili clique. There were only a few major cliques that controlled the majority of Chinese territories. The Feng Qian and Zhili cliques were two of the most powerful and controlled the most amount of land. In a time when China struggled without a formal government, warlord cliques were the closest to a system of rule that existed. Jian Chao grew up during a violent period ruled by outlaws. Researchers at the University of Utah discovered growing up in a war zone skewed children's moral worldview. The children generally agreed that violence against others was wrong. However, when revenge was introduced as a motive, they were more likely to see it as acceptable. Revenge justified violating their moral code about harming others. The Utah study also found that this conviction was particularly strongest among teenagers. Jian Chao turned 19 in 1925, the year her father left. By then, Jian Chao's moral view on revenge may have fit neatly into her commitment to filial piety. At this time, women's roles in Chinese society were becoming more modern. The traditions of foot-binding and arranged marriage were mostly eliminated. Women were commonly educated and were no longer expected to shield themselves from public view at adolescence. However, it was still expected that unmarried children would live with their parents as part of their filial duty until the parents' death. At age 19, Jian Chao remained unmarried and lived with her mother and younger siblings. With her mother's health deteriorating, it fell to Jian Chao to take care of her younger siblings and run the household. While Jian Chao took on more of a leadership role at home, her father, Shi Kongbin, went to war. And, as a Feng Qian officer, Shi Kongbin strategized against one of the Zhili clique's most notorious generals, Sun Chuanfang. Sun Chuanfang rivaled Shi Kongbin in terms of military experience. He began his military training at the Beiyang Military School and later went to Japan for even further training. When he returned from Japan, Chuan Feng joined the Zhili clique and quickly moved up the ranks to become one of their strongest leaders. However, Shi Jian Chao described Chuan Feng as having the heart of a demon and wrote that he was no different from a mere bandit. Soon, Chuan Feng was an experienced and ruthless opponent. 
But Shi Kongbin was confident the Feng Tian clique could conquer the Zhilis. So in the fall of 1925, Kongbin led thousands of men southward to challenge the Zhili clique and take over their territory. What the advancing Feng Tian soldiers didn't know was that they were marching into a surprise counterattack led by Chuan Feng. The warlords raged in battle as the Zhilis fought to protect their territorial gains. Although caught off guard, the Feng Tian clique used their military training to defend themselves. They retaliated against the Zhilis for several days. It was a hard-fought and bloody battle. 4,000 of Shi Kongbin's troops were slaughtered. Chuan Feng's unexpected counterattack devastated the Feng Tian clique. With their resources depleted and their troops decimated, the Feng Tians were defeated. And on October 4th, 1925, Zhili General Sun Chuanfang took Shi Kongbin as his personal prisoner of war. Zhen Chao knew that her father had been killed after being taken captive, but details were scarce. Everyone who survived the devastating battle was either loyal to her father's captors or afraid to speak against them, so little else was forthcoming. When she questioned Shi Kongbin's only surviving personal servant for details of her father's death, her father's servant tearfully fell to the ground, too overwhelmed to tell Jian Chao what he had witnessed. Desperate for information, 19-year-old Shi Jin Chao and her family traveled to Tianjin. Official records were kept in the city, and they might find some survivors sympathetic to their need for closure. In Tianjin, Shi Jianchao and her family learned that warlord Sun Chuanfang brutally decapitated Shi Kongbin and placed his impaled head on public display at a Bangbu train station. Jin Chao was outraged. She believed that the Zhili warlord had greatly dishonored her father. As 1925 came to a close, the 19-year-old vowed to avenge her father's murder. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. And now let's continue our story. In late 1925, 19-year-old Shi Chao was devastated to learn that her father, Shi Kongbin, was brutally killed by Zhili warlord Sun Chuanfang. Chuanfang further dishonored Jin Chao's father by publicly displaying his impaled head. In an act of filial piety, she vowed to avenge her father's death. In Chinese tradition, after a husband or father's unjust death, virtuous widows and devoted daughters were expected to kill themselves as an expression of loyalty and form of protest. However, Shi Jinchao's mother rejected the need to complete suicide, a testament to the modernization of women's roles during this time. Jian Chao also chose to live. She would later say, quote, Although all I wanted to do was die, my elderly mother's illness gave me the will to live. End quote. Suicide, as a form of protest, was only expected of the women in the family, and Jian Chao's sister was still too young to make that choice. So the remaining members of the Shi family would forge ahead together after their patriarch's death. 
Jin Chao would fulfill her filial duty to her mother by continuing to take care of her while plotting her revenge. As 1925 came to a close, She Jin Chao was confronted by a headline in the Shunqian Times. She Kongbin's death sentence, Sun Chuanfang adjudicated. Jian Chao learned that a Zhili military court found Chuanfang justified in killing Xie Kongbin as a penalty for her father's alleged war crimes. As the highest-ranking officer, Chuanfang presided over Xie Kongbin's battlefield trial. There were no surviving records of her father's alleged war crimes, and his killer acted as judge, jury, and executioner. The fact that her father had not received the fair trial he was entitled to under the rules of war confirmed to Jin Chao that his death was unjust. To add insult to injury, the man who murdered her father would escape any formal punishment. According to Psychology Today, not everyone is inclined to avenge perceived wrongs. However, people who put great worth on their reputations are, quote, more likely to seek revenge if they feel they and their honor have been unjustly impugned, end quote. Jian Chao's filial duty and the expectation that she must put her family's wellness above her own meant that Chuan Fong's transgressions against her father could not be forgiven. A University of Oklahoma study found that a lack of forgiveness wasn't necessarily a deciding factor in seeking revenge. Instead, they discovered that narcissism was a high indicator that someone would seek vengeance in response to injustice. According to the researchers, quote, both the narcissist's inflated social confidence and sense of entitlement could produce a desire to retaliate against wrongdoers and could reduce constraints on acting on this desire." End quote. If Jian Chao was a narcissist, she would have fewer inhibitions when deciding how to avenge her father's death. Dr. Joseph Burgo identifies the vindictive narcissist as a personality type in his book, The Narcissist You Know. Dr. Burgo says that when a vengeful narcissist feels attacked, their reaction is unrestrained. Jian Chao was not the only one who disagreed with the military court's ruling in Sun Chuanfang's favor. The press was also quick to share their opinions. Newspaper editorialist Miao Wei firmly condemned Sun Chuanfang in the widely distributed Jingbao. Wei wrote that Chuanfang unnecessarily humiliated Shi Kongbin by his gruesome decapitation and subsequent public display of his impaled head. Seeing their own conclusions echoed by the media fuels a narcissist's need for external validation. Now that the press had confirmed that her father suffered injustice, Jin Chao could justifiably plan her revenge. Jin Chao had no doubt that her father's death must be avenged. But as she grew older, she had more immediate concerns. Although arranged marriage had fallen out of fashion in early 20th century China, Jin Chao was betrothed by pre-arrangement. We don't know when the marriage was arranged, but we do know that Jin Chao decided to annul the commitment after the betrothed family's patriarch went on trial for raping another daughter-in-law. This would have happened before Jian Chao turned 21, the prescribed age at which women were married. 
The rape trial became known to the public as the case of the tongue, because a piece of the rapist's tongue was used as evidence after it was bitten off in self-defense. Jin Chao's potential father-in-law was ultimately convicted. The case of the tongue was widely covered in the media. Jin Chao would have brought shame to her family had she gone through with the marriage. The public's opinion may have evolved on women's roles, but traditional values were still common and accepted. Jin Chao made the decision to end the betrothal. In doing so, she once again demonstrated the importance of the family group over self, regardless of personal loss. As Jin Chao became an adult, she took charge of her own destiny. Jin Chao turned 20 in 1926. It may have been around this time that she adopted the name Shi Jin Chao and used it in place of her given name, Shi Gulan. Choosing an alternate or courtesy name was a practice that was restricted to men in China, a tradition since the Zhou dynasty. The courtesy name was part of a coming-of-age ceremony when men turned 20. Shi Jian Chao may have seen choosing her own name as a declaration that she was taking on more traditionally male responsibilities in her family. Perhaps as her own private coming-of-age ceremony. Whatever her motivation may have been, there's no mistaking how deliberately she chose her new name. The written character of Jian primarily means sword or dagger, while Chao means to raise. So as Shi Jian Chao, she began representing herself to the world as a raised sword. By adopting this new name, Shi Jian Chao clearly stated her intention to violently avenge her father's death to anyone who was paying attention. While Jin Chao planned her next move, her father's killer was still engaged in the violent clash between warlord groups. For the two years after his surprise counterattack on Shi Kongbin's unit, soon Chuan Feng continued to rise in the Zhili clique and ultimately became a strong, high-ranking military leader. However, his success was fleeting. After losing several major battles and being pushed out of his stronghold in Shanghai, Chuan Feng desperately needed new alliances to become a major political leader. He was finally able to join forces with the remainder of the Feng Tian clique. This was the same warlord group Shu Kongbin led against Sun's army years before. Aligning with his former enemies was Chuan Feng's final effort to hold on to power and defeat the rising Nationalist Party. It must have been a bitter pill for Shu Jin Chao to swallow when her deceased father's warlord group ultimately joined forces with his killer. By the late 1920s, the end of the warlord era seemed inevitable in the face of the nationalist movement. After decades of chaos under warlord rule, the nationalist goal of uniting China under a single authoritarian government was gaining popularity. With little hope of achieving his political ambitions, Chuan Feng retired from military life in 1928 to devote his life to Buddhism. The year Chuan Feng retired, Shi Jin Chao turned 21. Avenging her father's death was foremost in her mind, but she believed that a male member of her family should carry out the plan. Although Jin Chao had an older brother, she felt he was not suited to the task of avenging Shi Kongbin's death. 
Her only uncle was dead, and his son, Jen Chao's sole male cousin, was away at Baoding Military Academy. Finally, Jin Chao realized there was another way to facilitate the revenge she so desperately wanted. Since there were no suitable men already in the family, Jin Chao would simply add another male member by getting married. Coincidentally sharing the same surname, Shi Jinggong had been classmates with Jin Chao's cousin at Baoding Military Academy. As someone with military training, Jin Gong was an attractive option to carry out Jin Chao's plans. Therefore, Jin Chao agreed to marry Jin Gong on the condition that he avenge her father's death by killing Sun Chuan Feng. He agreed to her terms, and the two were married in 1928 when Jin Chao was 21. Jin Chao believed this would finally fulfill her filial duty to her father. Not much has been written about Jing Gong other than the fact that shortly after they were married, he was required to report to the remote province of Shanxi for an extended period of time. After marrying him specifically to have a male relative capable of carrying out her plans, Jin Chao's new husband was already out of the picture. Her plans for finally getting revenge on Sun Chuanfang had hit another dead end. However, just as all seemed lost, Jin Chao may have found new inspiration at the local movie theater. As China began to break with Confucian tradition and the family system, a traditional genre of Chinese literature was updated for modern audiences. Wuxia fiction peaked in popularity in the late 1920s and became a symbol of personal freedom during a time of seismic cultural change. A literary genre containing stories about the martial arts, wuxia featured characters capable of impressive displays of martial arts skill. The Chinese character for wu describes things like martial arts and the military, while the character for xia can describe both heroes and vigilantes. Xia were seen as noble warriors who fight for honor and a personal sense of justice, and wuxia novels were selling in China as briskly as pulp fiction was in the States. As novels flew off the shelves, the Chinese film industry took notice, and wuxia also exploded in theaters. Shi Jin Chao's plan for her new husband to be an instrument of revenge disintegrated before it even got started, but a newly released wuxia film may have given her hope that she wasn't out of options. The 1920s are considered a golden age in Chinese cinema, and films were widely available to Chinese audiences. In 1929, Jen Chao turned 23. There's no evidence that the family suffered socially or economically following in the four years since her father's death. Jen Chao would have had both the time and the means to go to the movies. That same year, audiences made the film Red Heroin a box office smash. Movie reviewer Helen Geib, one of the few modern critics who saw and wrote about Red Heroin, describes it as a, quote, filial duty melodrama wrapped in a martial arts revenge drama, end quote. Produced as a section of the 13-part serialized film Red Knight Errant, Red Heroin seems tailor-made to appeal to Shu Jen Chao. The film follows a young woman who, in an act of filial piety, avenges her grandmother's death by assassinating the warlord who killed her. Notably, Red Heroine was the first wuxia film to feature a female protagonist. 
It's narrative about a female victim who becomes an unstoppable force for justice was groundbreaking for its time. The film's message was in tune with China's recent advancements in female equality. And with a story that, at its heart, paralleled her own, it's easy to see how it could have inspired Jen Chao. Finally, as the 1930s began, 23-year-old Shi Jen Chao realized that she didn't need a male relative to avenge her father. She could assassinate Sun Chuanfang herself. By the 1930s, the warlord era was over in China, and the Nationalist Party had risen to power. As an anti-nationalist and ex-militarist, Sun Chuanfang had limited options after his unsuccessful power grab in the Xili warlord clique. Chuanfang declared his commitment to Buddhism at the end of his military career. And a few years later, in 1931, he established the Lay Buddhist Society in Tianjin with fellow ex-militarist Jin Yongpeng. Public sentiment surrounding warlords was extremely mixed at the time. Some people saw their rule as unnecessarily cruel and oppressive. Others believed that warlords had brought order to chaotic and formerly lawless areas. The public also had mixed opinions about former warlord Chuan Feng. As a result, he kept a fairly low profile during this time. While Chuan Feng was settled into his post-war life, Xie Jian Chao was also adapting to a new role, motherhood. Despite the fact that Xie Jin Chao's husband had been dispatched to a remote province for most of their married life, in the early 1930s, Xie gave birth to two sons, Jin Ren and Yu Yao. As Jin Chao tended to her young sons, a sensational headline-grabbing trial was getting underway. Its outcome would be pivotal to Jin Chao's revenge plot. In September 1932, a young man pushed through a crowded train platform to get closer to a former Feng Tian general who was passing through the province of Shandong with his large entourage. The general, Zhang Zongchang, served in the same clique as Xie Jianchao's father. The young man, whose name was Zheng Jicheng, was clearly on a mission. He staked out a space in the horde of people with a clear line of sight as General Zhang finished addressing an audience. While General Zhang was surrounded by journalists and government officials bidding him farewell, Ji Cheng broke away from the crowd, pulled out a pistol, and opened fire on the retired warlord. With Zhang dead, Ji Cheng immediately surrendered. The media frenzy surrounding Zhang's assassination made it inevitable that Ji Cheng's trial would capture headlines as well. As the trial got underway, the public learned that during his violent career in the Feng Tian clique, General Zhang had brutally executed Ji Cheng's uncle. Ji Cheng knew that killing Zhang in such a high-profile way would get him press coverage from the onset. As a result, he ensured that the public knew from the beginning that he had avenged his uncle's unjust death at the hands of a murderous warlord. But it was the cornerstone of Ji Cheng's defense that would have interested Shi Jin Chao. Ji Cheng's lawyers argued that because he had killed General Zhang out of filial piety, it was an act of justifiable revenge. Ultimately, the Nanjing government agreed and Zhang Jicheng was granted a full pardon. 
he had fulfilled his filial duty and escaped punishment. Although China was moving toward a more authoritarian rule of law, Confucian tradition was recognized as a legitimate motive by the courts. Zheng's case seems too similar to the way Shu Jin Chao's own story would play out to be coincidental. And with the widespread availability of newspaper and radio reports by this time in China, Jen Chao was no doubt at least familiar with the case. Whether or not Jen Chao had begun to plan for her own defense at this time, there's no question that the final piece of her plan fell into place when it literally walked in her front door. In 1934, when Jen Chao was 28, her brother's classmate came to the family's home in Tianjin for a short visit. With her mother's health declining, Jin Chao took on hosting the family's guest. It's unknown how long her brother's guest stayed, or even which brother he was visiting. But we do know that after her guest's departure, Jin Chao discovered he had left his Browning pistol behind. Whether by simple forgetfulness or by prearrangement, Jen Chao's houseguest had put the weapon she would use to enact her revenge against Sun Chuan Feng into her hands. The final planning could begin. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now let's continue the story. As 1935 began, 28-year-old Shi Jin Chao had her weapon, the Browning pistol left at her house, and perhaps also had a loose strategy for her defense after a recent revenge-killing trial ended in a full pardon. Now, she just needed to know how to find the man responsible for her father's death, Sun Chuan Feng. Ten years had passed since Chuan Feng killed Shi Kongbin. But Shi Jin Chao was no less determined to have vengeance than she'd ever been. In January 1935, Jin Chao enrolled one of her sons in Peikai Elementary School in Tianjin. She chose this school after finding out that Chuan Feng's daughter was also attending. She took her son to school each day, paying careful attention and eavesdropping where she could. It wasn't long before Jin Chao learned in which of Tianjin's neighborhoods Chuan Feng was living. Now that she was closer to finding her target, Jin Chao went back home to strategize her next move. After spending some time in her village putting her affairs in order, Jin Chao returned to Tianjin in early summer 1935. When she got there, she discovered that Chuan Feng's daughter had transferred schools, a momentary setback. But she remained undeterred. Soon, Jin Chao realized that her niece was now attending school with Chuan Feng's daughter. After some investigation, Shi was able to get Chuan Feng's license plate number. Months later, Shi Jin Chao finally spotted Chuan Feng's car, and then the man himself, outside a movie theater. This was likely the first time Jin Chao had laid eyes on her father's killer. After 10 years, revenge was close enough to feel tangible. Jin Chao's years of meticulous planning were fueled by thoughts of filial piety and duty to her family group. It's also possible that her brain's pleasure centers were activating every time she even thought about finally having her revenge. University of Miami psychology professor Michael McCullough explains that when someone wrongs us, not only does the brain's reward anticipation system activate, 
but so does the left prefrontal cortex. When both these things happen, it's a signature pattern of activation in the planning of a goal. So on some level, we're already thinking about payback as soon as something we think is unjust happens to us. And when we're working toward a goal with revenge in mind, it becomes like a craving to the brain. It wants us to achieve the thing that activated our reward center. This may be why Shu Jin Chao was so committed to killing Sun Chuan Feng that she spent a decade making it come to fruition. And now she was in the final months before she would have her opportunity. In September of 1935, 29-year-old Shu Jin Chao and her family attended a service to observe the anniversary of Shu Kongbin's death. The death anniversary ceremony has been associated with Confucianism, Buddhism, and Hinduism. In China, the ceremony involved making sacrifices to the spirits of one's ancestors. While we don't know for sure what the family's affiliation was, Jin Chao's father's ceremony was presided over by a Buddhist monk. It's likely that the family followed both Confucian and Buddhist philosophies, which was not unusual. It was at the memorial that Jin Chao would get the fateful piece of information that would finally make her revenge a reality. The monk presiding over the ceremony told Jin Chao that Sun Chuan Feng could be found at Tianjin's lay Buddhist society, where he regularly assisted in leading sutra recitation. Jin Chao immediately sprang into action and began visiting the lay Buddhist society. After verifying that Chuan Feng was indeed a leader there, Shi made friends with a female member to continue gathering information. She adopted the Buddhist name Dong Hui and expressed interest in joining the society, but said she wanted to observe for a while before she made her decision. Jin Chao made several preliminary visits to the lay Buddhist society, watching and waiting for an opportunity to strike against Chuan Feng. When she wasn't at the lay Buddhist society doing reconnaissance, Jin Chao made out her will. She also wrote a piece of poetry explaining her motive and two statements of intent about the assassination. She was methodical and unwavering in her quest to complete her filial duty. Finally, on November 13, 1935, Shi Jin Chao's moment of opportunity came. When Jen Chao arrived at the Buddhist hall that morning, she was disappointed to find only a few chanters present. Chuan Feng had not shown up. Thinking he might just be delayed by the rain showers that had popped up, Jen Chao hung around and chatted with some other members who were waiting for the rain to finally stop. Finally, a little after two o'clock, Chuan Feng's car pulled up and he entered the lay Buddhist society. In an interview, Xie Jin Chao said, quote, I realized my opportunity for revenge had arrived. I had not brought my handgun, so I quickly took a taxicab home and retrieved my gun. End quote. When Xie arrived back at the lay Buddhist society with the Browning pistol, she saw Chuan Feng at the front of the hall with his head bowed, leading a chant. Xie walked through the chanters and stood directly behind him. With no hesitation, Xie Jin Chao shot Sun Chuan Feng three times in the back of the head, using up all the bullets in the gun. Her father's killer fell to the floor, dead. 
Jen Chow discarded her pistol as soon as she pulled the trigger for the final time. She remained calm to keep the crowd from panicking. There was no attempt to restrain her, but someone did immediately call the police. As she waited for the police to arrive, Jin Chao quickly distributed mimeographed copies of her poem and the statements of intent to the shocked congregants. Jin Chao's short statement of intent offered the room full of witnesses some answers about why she shot Sun. The list of four points began, gentlemen, take note. Item number one on the list read, quote, today, Shi Jin Chao, given name Shi Gulan, has killed Sun Chuanfeng in order to avenge the death of her father, Shi Kongbin, end quote. In item number two, she directed, quote, for concrete details of the situation, please refer to the Gao Guren Shu, end quote. Here she refers to a longer piece of writing she also distributed, which went into more detail. The third item stated, I have accomplished the great revenge and am immediately turning myself into the courts. And further, in item number four, quote, as for splattering blood onto the walls of the Buddhist hall and shocking everyone, my deepest apologies, end quote. The piece was signed, Female Avenger Shi Jian Chao, and marked with her fingerprint, so there would be no question that the statement was hers. As Jin Chao calmly finished distributing her missives, the police arrived and charged into the bloody crime scene. True to her word, Shi Jian Chao immediately surrendered. Not long after the police took Jin Chao into custody in November of 1935, her mimeographed materials were reprinted in all the newspapers. Urban China's newsreaders were able to read Xu's justifications for her crime in her own words almost immediately. The press was chasing down as yet unknown details about Sun Chuanfeng's execution. Everyone wanted to be the first to tell Xi Jianchao's story. But by writing such personal and impassioned materials, then distributing them at the crime scene, Xu had already taken control of her own narrative and begun shaping the public's perception of her. Xu Jianchao would prove to be a master of manipulating the press to skew public sentiment in her favor as her trial got underway. She gave frequent interviews and deliberately created dramatic moments in her testimony, knowing full well what a large audience she had created. But whether meant as a sentimental manipulation or an honest and vulnerable expression of her feelings, Xu Jin Chao's poem was certainly effective in evoking public sympathy. The seven-character, regulated verse Xu crafted read, quote, I dare not forget the revenge of my father for a single moment. It breaks my heart to watch my mother's temples turn gray. I am loath to let her suffer any longer. The opportunity should not be squandered. End quote. Quote, I cannot bear to look back to ten years ago. Things have remained the same, only the scenery has changed. I arrive at the society not to find the Buddha. I seek death, not immortality. End quote. Ten years after Xia Jianchao vowed to avenge her father's death, she had finally fulfilled her filial duty. With her father's killer dead, Xia had achieved what she'd spent most of her adult life pursuing. However, her fight was far from over. Only eight days after her arrest, 
30-year-old Xu Jinchao's trial would begin. Her trial would make headlines and incite debate over whether the Confucian idea of filial piety was a valid defense in a modern judiciary. Shi Jinchao's crime was shocking, but her defense would be the talk of a nation. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. Next week, we'll talk about the aftermath of Shi's public execution of her father's killer, her prosecution and controversial defense, and her role as one of the first women to use the media to shape the public's perception of her crime. If you want to listen to any future episodes of Female Criminals, you can find a new one every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and Spotify or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Nicole Simmons and stars Claire Delamar and Vanessa Richardson.